The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Our sermon lesson for consideration this evening is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And uh, you've heard me say this before, but the section headings in your Bibles and the chapter divisions in your Bibles, those numbers, and the verse divisions in your Bible, those numbers, none of those are actually inspired by God. In other words, God's word in general is inspired by God, but the section headings, the chapter divisions, and the verse divisions uh, were put there by human beings who thought they would be helpful. And 98% of the time, they are helpful. And 2% of the time, they're actually kind of misleading. Or worse yet, even sometimes a little bit inaccurate. Uh, Our sermon lesson tonight is a parable that begins in Matthew chapter 22, but it really actually is the third and final in a series of parables that Jesus teaches. It's the third of parables that starts in Matthew chapter 21, and these parables are taught because some Jewish leaders come to Jesus and ask him where he gets the authority to teach the things that he's teaching to the people. Specifically, in Matthew 21, what it says is Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this kind of authority, he says, they say. And Jesus' response is to teach them a series of three parables. Now, the first of these parables, by the way, perhaps appropriately for Father's Day, all of these parables, these three parables, have to deal with a father and a son. The first of the parables is generally known as the parable of the two sons. That's different from, uh, we looked at a parable of the lost son or the lost sons a number of weeks back. It's different from that one, uh, but it's the parable of the two sons. And the second parable is called the parable of the tenants. And the third parable, which is the culmination of them all, is the one that we're going to look at here tonight, the parable of the wedding banquet. And in the first of those parables, there's a, it's a progression of thought. The first of those parables, Jesus is teaching what a truly obedient son actually looks like. In the second of the parables, Jesus teaches about a son who is unfairly, unjustly tortured and killed. And in the third parable, we find out who gets into this son's wedding banquet and how do they get there. Now, the wedding banquet throughout Scripture, certainly in uh, Jesus' parables and even right up until the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation, we find that the the wedding banquet is often the preferred imagery used by Jesus to teach about heaven. So when we're looking at Jesus' parable of a wedding banquet, we're looking at who's in, who's out, and on the basis of what do they get there, okay? This is the culmination. This is the granddaddy of these parables, and this is the finality of time. And here's what Jesus has to say. We're going to divide this parable up into three distinct sections as we go through it because there's a number of interesting twists and turns along the way. So, first of all, we find a king preparing for a wedding banquet for his son, We read in Matthew 22, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused. They'd already been invited. They'd already accepted in a sense. But now they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is now ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. And the rest of them seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged by all of this. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. And generally speaking, that's the first chunk. Generally speaking, if you're going to tell a story about a beautiful wedding banquet... It's going to be a story about a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And so there's our first twist already. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story about a wedding banquet. The two main characters in this, ban- in this banquet story are what? Who? A father and a son. There's the first twist. Now, the king has already sent out invitations to this wedding banquet for his son. You might consider them pre-invitations. It's sort of like... Um, Probably every spring for the past 10 years, my wife and I, our, our refrigerator door in the spring is absol- to, the, to such a degree that you almost can't even see the refrigerator. It's filled with save-the-date cards. Okay, Every spring we got these tons and tons of save-the-date cards. And those aren't actual invitations to a wedding. Those are pre-invitations to a wedding saying, mark down on your calendar, another invitation with more specific details will eventually be coming uh, to you. But these are just the pre-invitations. They did the exact same thing in the ancient world. How they did it without shutterfly and refrigerator doors, I don't know. But they did it. These are pre-invitations. Okay? And especially in the ancient world when you didn't have things like uh, refrigeration, whenever you're doing large-scale food preparation, you can only give an approximate time when the meal is going to be held. So you said, we're going to hold it on this day at approximately this time. So you send out the pre-invitation, and then when the time actually comes, the king would send his servants out to the people and say, okay, the food's ready, now come on in. So that's what they do. The servants go out, they tell the people who have already been pre-invited, you can come on in now, but we're told the people refused. They refused to come at this point. Now why did they refuse to come? You know how furious this must have been for the king? How, how infuriating this was? I remember when my wife and I were planning our wedding. She did most of the planning. But when we, when we plan for our wedding, you have to give things like caterers a very specific account and, and all that. Any of you who have been married or are planning to get married, there's a number of you right now, or are thinking one day down the line uh, you want to get married, there's all sorts of just countless details that you have to provide, and you have to have an exact number of people who will show up for the reception, to give them a head count. Because you pay for all those people whether they're there or not. And it's often a lot of money. And I can distinctly remember on the wedding day, uh, I remember people who had RSVP'd and said, yeah, we're coming, didn't show up. And now I'm smiling throughout the picture process, but the stingy part of me in the back of my mind is thinking, just like calculating one, two, three, four times the amount of money that we owe per per open bar and and per meal. And uh, there were even some people who actually showed up at the ceremony itself and said, you know, I think we're going to head home. 
And at that point, I was thinking to myself, yeah, you know, I know it's a lawn, uh, a lawn drive, and you're tired, and at least that's what I said. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you couldn't have thought about this a month ago when you filled out the invitation, and you're, you haven't moved. You're the exact same distance away. You couldn't have said, no, I'm not coming. When you plan for people, when you sacrifice for people to be there, and they all of a sudden don't want to show up, that's at the very least a little rude. So the king is understandably, rightfully, a little upset by this. But he doesn't give up on him yet. He sends out another batch of servants and he says, My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. In other words, there's no reason for you not to come in. Everything's prepared. Everything's been sacrificed. Everything's been butchered. All the food's ready. You said you wanted to come in. Now come on in. Why won't you come in? Just because there is not a good reason not to do something doesn't mean that people don't come up with excuses not to do things, though. We're very good. We're very, very good and creative at coming up with excuses not to do things. Uh, the, the excuses that the people give here are they say, well, you know, I got to get back to my fields. Or I got to get back to my business. I got a lot on my plate. I got a lot, got a lot going on. And it's, it, you know, beneath all the surface of that, it's a general disinterest and it's an apathy and it's a preoccupation with self and the stuff that's going on in my life. And in an interesting kind of twist on things, we're actually told that not only are some of the, the invitees, not only are they a little disinterested, they're actually hostile. Some of them actually grab the servants that the king sends out and they torture them and kill them. Jesus doesn't tell us why in the parable. Maybe they wanted to be the king's son themselves. Maybe they were jealous. Maybe they wanted to be the king. Maybe they wanted to one, be the ones that got all the glory and the attention and called the shots in life. I don't know. Just because somebody doesn't have a good excuse, though, doesn't mean they don't offer excuses. And regardless of what the reason or justification or the excuse is that the people gave for attending the king's invited banquet, the king's furious. We're actually told that he now sends out his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Now, in the grand scheme of this parable, what all the Bible commentators will very clearly say is this is a message that Jesus is giving to teach us that the first people that the Messiah was sent to to invite into the banquet would reject him. This is the Jewish people. Jesus came as prophesied, first to his own people, first to the Jews. Some of them rejected him because they just weren't interested. They had too much going on in their lives. He wasn't what they were hoping for. They were disinterested. They were self-preoccupied. Some of them actually rejected him in such a hostile way that they not only took him, they took his servants, the prophets that were sent to them, and they tortured them and killed them. Now, most Bible commentators, at least Christian commentators, will say that this specific uh, word here that Jesus is giving in the parable, that he's going to destroy the murderers and burn their city, that is fulfilled, that is fulfilled very clearly, actually in 70 AD, under Roman invasion, when the Romans come in and not only burn the city of Rome, but burn down the temple. The Jewish faith cannot and has not ever really recovered from that. But the first message that Jesus is giving here is the people that he was originally sent to, that servants, prophets prior had been sent to, 
to let them know to come on into the banquet, by and large, for their own personal reasons, they rejected him. So now, the banquet's already prepared. What are you going to do? It's time to move on. We move on to plan B. And here's what Jesus teaches. He sa- it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those that I invited did not deserve to come. So, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out onto the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. You see, the king, of course, doesn't want his banquet to go to waste. He's already prepared all these wonderful things. He's already made tremendous sacrifices. He's got a beautiful banquet waiting. And he says to his servants, go out into the the city and find everybody you can and now invite them in indiscriminately, whomever it may be. It's sort of like, a lot of you are too young to, to remember this. I remember my mom watched a lot of Oprah when I was little. And uh, Oprah used to have these giveaway shows. And uh, on the giveaway shows, it was, it was just ridiculous amounts of generosity. Like everybody in the studio audience would like get a car. And she'd be like, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car, and everybody gets a car. And, and everybody, there was women like just passing out in the audience because they couldn't believe the enormous generosity Uh, that she was showing to them. That's what this is like. The people on the street corners don't anticipate ever being able to step foot into the presence of the king, let alone be invited into one of the king's party. And yet, the servants are going out and saying, and you get a banquet, and you get a banquet, and you get a banquet, and everybody's super pumped and excited about this. They can't believe the tremendous grace that they're being shown. So they come. Now, interestingly, we're told, let me go back a second, If you look in verse 9, it says, so go to the street corners. That's actually kind of an awkward translation. It can mean street corners, but it can also mean the place where the streets or the roads cross, the crossroads of life, the cross sections of life. In fact, a lot of commentators will say this is referring to the, the spot in every ancient city, every ancient city that was walled around it, had a main entryway and exit point of the city. Interestingly enough, that's the one spot in the entire city where everybody in the city, didn't matter who you were, it didn't matter your economic status or whatever else, everybody to get in and out of the city, you had to go there. See, oftentimes cities are, are fairly segregated and segmented. Some large cities are still like this. Maybe Milwaukee is still a little bit like this. Cities certainly used to be like this. A lot of cities, even a generation or two ago, you could say, yeah, uh, the Catholics live north of 82nd Street and the Protestants live south of 82nd Street. That's the level of segregation that a lot of cities used to have. Or this is the, the white part or the black part or the Hispanic part or the Asian part of town or the high economic status or the low economic status. And cities oftentimes are divided like that and, and every one of us, I think, basically knows that that's not healthy and not good. But the fact of the matter is that's how a lot of cities are segmented. And you know what Jesus is saying? You know what the king is saying? Go to the spot in the city where everybody meets. Go to the spot in the city where everybody goes, the crossroads. And that's where you invite people because you get people from every walk of life. It doesn't matter their education level. It doesn't matter their ethnic background. It doesn't matter how much money they have or don't have. Everyone is invited now. The invitation is solely by grace. You see that? Now, let me show you one more thing that's even more beautiful than that. This is, this is one of the passages in Scripture that has preoccupied me for uh, the past couple of years that is now one of the most beautiful things I've seen in Scripture. You'll notice in verse 10, 
When the servants go out, it says that they gathered all the people that they could, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now you notice I have underlined and bolded there the bad as well as the good. You know what's interesting about that? In the late 20th century, that's not what the translations of the Bible said. In the late part of the 20th century, let me just take one from 1984, and I'll read you that verse. Matthew 22:10. it says, So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, both the good and the bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see the difference? In the latter portion of the 20th century, every single translation said the good people and the bad people. It's almost as if the translators couldn't wrap their brains around the idea that the bad would get into the banquet just as quickly as the good would. In other words, by the way, if you're wondering in the Greek, oh, you can't fit it all on there, but it says poneirus, that's the evil, the wicked, and the immoral, and then it says and the good. Very clearly in the Greek, it says the bad and the good. There would be absolutely no reason to invert those to say the good and the bad unless you almost couldn't even embrace the idea that bad people get into heaven just as quickly as good people, that it's really by grace. And a lot of us grew up almost kind of defining Christianity and defining the gospel that way, that God basically loves and accepts and supports and blesses the basically good people or the relatively speaking good people and he's actually so gracious he might even take some of the bad people in too. No, that's not grace. Grace means we're all exactly the same by nature. Grace means that all of our records are exactly the same apart from Christ. We all equally fall short of the glory of God. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can save any single one of us. You see, if you believe that it's, it's, it's grace plus kind of what you do, your performance or your good works or the fact that you're basically obedient or basically good or relatively speaking better than most, you're giving yourself some credit for salvation and you're always going to look down on other people that aren't nearly as, quite as good as you. You're always going to have a certain sense of condescension about your Christian faith at that point. But if you believe that it's really by grace, you'll always have a sense of wonderment, a sense of humility, and a sense of you've got to come and hear this message. See, a Christian never says, oh yeah, of course me. A Christian says, I can't believe that God would even rescue me. And that changes their relationship with everyone and everything. The servants came and they welcomed in the bad and the good They're equally invited in. I can only imagine how much that must have rattled the self-righteous Pharisees as Jesus taught the story. There's still one final turn in this parable. They get into the banquet and the king notices one of the guys isn't wearing the wedding clothes. Here's how it goes. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? See, he still calls him friend. He's still being loving and civil to him. But the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So, 
all these people from all walks of life are welcomed into the banquet hall. And the king is going around and mingling with them and rejoicing with them and celebrating their presence there and celebrating the son's wedding. But the king spots one guy who's not wearing the wedding clothes. Now, keep in mind, we said earlier that the wedding banquet is always kind of representative of the idea of eternal life, heaven, the final wedding banquet with God. And therefore, if someone is not in the wedding banquet, if they're thrown out of the wedding banquet, they're thrown into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and there's no way to sugarcoat what that is referring to, right? Why does this guy get thrown out? Almost everybody who reads this will look at it and say, that seems a little harsh. Really? Because he's, he's not dressed the right way? Because he's not wearing the right clothes? That's what I always said about the parable too. Until I finally discovered really at the, at one of the secrets to understanding this parable is a cultural one. All of the Bible commentators going back all the way to the early commentators, guys like the church fathers like St. Augustine will say that in those days in the ancient world, whenever a king throws a banquet, the king also provides all of the wedding clothes. So in other words, when these servants go out to invite these people into the banquet, remember, they weren't planning on going to a wedding that day. They were just out going to work. They were just out on the town. They weren't dressed for a wedding. They didn't have time to run home and change and get ready for a wedding. In fact, the matter is, so many of these people were poor and they didn't have other outfits that they could change into to go to a wedding, even if they had the time to do it. They just came as they were. They were invited in as they were. When the king invites someone into the wedding banquet, he provides all of the clothes for that person. And therefore, when you find a guy who's not wearing the wedding clothes, the question is, why is he refusing? See, this is why we're told, why we're told that the man was speechless. When the king confronts him about it, he's got no excuses and he knows he's got no excuses. The king has provided for everything at his own cost. This man heard the generous offer. This man wanted to come into the banquet, but he wanted to do it on his own terms. He wanted to go into the banquet on the basis of his own clothes, his own robe of rightness. The king had asked everyone who entered into the banquet, strip off your robe of rightness and put on the robe that I am giving to you. But this man refused and said, no, I want to do it on my own terms, on the basis of my own rightness. And the king said, I'm sorry, you can't be in the banquet that way. What's this teaching us? Now, this parable works on a couple different levels. And what I mean by that is the people who heard it at the time Jesus was teaching it very clearly probably heard one thing. But people throughout the ages can hear something a little bit deeper on it. At the time when Jesus is telling it, very clearly he's saying, all the servants, the prophets that God the Father, the King, sent for my banquet, you have rejected. The Jewish people have rejected for their own reasons. For indifference, for apathy, for self-preoccupation, with hostility, for pride, who knows why, but they rejected. And now my mission is to move on to the Gentiles, which is just a word that means the other nations. But on a different level, for us here today, for us who already understand the fact that Jesus came to be the Savior of the entire world, not just the Jewish people, but also the Gentile world, 
There's three different views of God that I think are ultimately being taught here, the first two being eliminated. In other words, there is a traditionalist or conservative religious view of God. This view says that God and salvation comes to basically good people. Basically good people get to enter into the banquet. Those who try to obey God, those who obey, behave correctly, or at least better than most other people out there. Again, the idea that uh, God loves and blesses and accepts the basically good people, maybe some of the bad people too. Jesus' parable here totally eviscerates that idea. Why? Because the king invites into the banquet the bad as well as the good. It's not that God basically loves and accepts the good people of life because the, the bad are welcomed into the banquet just as quickly as the good are. And so the liberal approach to religion would then say, yes, acceptance. There's no sin, there's no condemnation, there's no rejection, there's no none of that. God is a God of love who brings in and, and welcomes in everyone. But how does this parable eviscerate that false idea? Because there's a guy in the banquet who insists on wearing his own clothes, but the king says to him, I'm sorry if you don't strip off your robe of righteousness and put on my robe of righteousness, you can't be in. There's conditions. There's rejection. There's consequence. That doesn't sound like traditional religion or liberal religion. That doesn't sound like conservatism or progressivism. It's not. There's a different view, the gospel view. You can't tell it's the right one because I put it in the biggest letters. What's the gospel view? The gospel view says that all are invited non-conditionally, non-discriminatorily, but you have to strip off your robes. Jesus comes and he meets you where you're at and he immediately welcomes you in, but he doesn't let you stay where you are. Can I say that again? Jesus comes and he meets you right where you're at and he immediately invites you in, but he doesn't let you stay where you are. You have to take off your robe of righteousness. And you say, well, I don't have a robe of righteousness. Yes, you do. We all do. We all are on a quest throughout life to gain acceptance. Acceptance with God, acceptance with our fellow man, acceptance with when we look in the mirror and see ourselves. You know what righteousness really is? It means to become right with. We're trying to get right with God, we're trying to get right with the world, we're trying to become right with ourselves and therefore become acceptable. And all of us have something like kind of on our resumes that we think gets us there. And maybe it's our good looks, and maybe it's our winsome personality, and maybe it's our sense of humor, and maybe it's our intelligence, and maybe it's the schools we got into, and maybe it's our career aspirations, and maybe it's our promotion, and maybe it's our beautiful children, and maybe it's our wonderful family, and maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but you've got something. Remember, this is what we talked about idolatry. It's the thing in your life that you said, if, if I could just have this, then my life would finally be right. Or the thing in your life that you said, if I lost this, my life would hardly be worth anything. That's probably your robe of righteousness. And you know what Jesus asks you to do? You take it off. And you say, Jesus, I repent for building my identity on that particular thing. The only thing that makes me right before God, the only thing that I care about that makes me right with myself is 
the robe of Christ's righteousness which has been gifted to me. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians and puts it like this. He says, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. None of us deserves to be in the banquet. We haven't earned the meal ticket. We haven't paid for it ourselves. There's no effort, no good intentions, no good deeds that God should just accept us as we are. What we do have, what we all have equally, which makes us at the exact same level, is we have the grace of Jesus Christ. The banquet is free. The banquet is beautiful. The banquet never ends and it comes because God loved you enough to sacrifice himself on the cross so that you will get the eternal VIP treatment. That's how precious you are to God. Jesus was stripped so that we could be clothed. Jesus' arms and legs were nailed to the cross so that our arms and legs could be free to dance in the party eternally. Jesus went thirsty so that we would never have to stop drinking and partying. Jesus is the reason that we'll party forever. We are saved by the robe of Christ's righteousness alone. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, all of us are on a quest in life to try to cover the thing that we know makes us not quite right. We have these flaws and imperfections and brokenness that we're ashamed of. And just like Adam and Eve trying to cover their nakedness, we we try to find something that we think overcomes the brokenness and the sin. Nothing does. Nothing but the blood of Jesus our Savior. Only in Christ are our sins washed away. Only in the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness gifted to us are we fully covered and can we truly be seen for what we are now, redeemed, beautiful children of God. Help us to understand grace better. Help us to appreciate this robe more and let us live out of that joy each day of our lives. We pray this in our risen Savior's name. Amen.